Hello and welcome to the second episode of Vivify Conversations podcast. Thanks to all of you who listened to episode one and sent me all your lovely feedback and recommendations for the future. As you might notice, we've switched things up a little bit this time, so the music has changed around, just going for a slightly different feel and I hope it improves the overall vibe, let me know. So in this episode, I'll be speaking to Mugabe. He is an award-winning writer, poet and occasional rapper. He was born in Nigeria to Ugandan parents and is currently based between Kampala and Toronto. His debut novel, Dear Philomena, was published in 2017 and was named a Ugandan bestseller in 2018. For his full bio, check the show notes on my website and on Vivify Conversations Instagram page. I really hope you enjoy this episode and leave your comments as always. Thank you. Hey there, you're listening to Vivify Conversations, a podcast promoting holistic and inclusive well-being. I'm your host, Priscilla Vivian. Join me as I speak with guests from all over the world exploring mental health, wellness and self-cultivation. Follow Vivify Conversations on Instagram and check the Vivify Conversations hashtag for new episodes and all updates. Thank you so much for listening. Mugabe, thank you for Hi. coming on to Vivify Conversations podcast today. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate you. Could you tell mm-hmm. our listeners a bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Uh, sure thing. So my name is Mugabe. I predominantly um, call myself a writer. I spend the majority of my days like managing multiple like disabilities and writing on the side. I put out my first book three years ago and toured North America and East Africa in support of that, which was a lot of fun and quite the tumultuous time. And so now I am basically working on book two and a bunch of other little projects on the side. Mm, So Mm -hmm. some exciting things you've already achieved and sounds like there's a lot in store as well. I really want to dig into your writing and your book that you've already published. But before that, I just wanted to kind of backtrack and learn a little bit more about you. And as you said, kind of managing multiple disabilities on a day-to-day basis. What has that journey Mm. been like for you? It's been a very volatile and very like turbulent journey. My disabilities first manifested when I was nine. I suffered from a stroke, which the doctors still don't really like understand like because I was nine and then I had two more strokes at 22 and so those three all combined together led to like various different complications and different manifestations of the brain damage and so that leads to like multiple different disabilities that I manage on a daily basis. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So it's something that you've had to kind of managed from a very young age Um, and it sounds Mm -hmm. really frustrating to not be able to have a clear sort of diagnosis or reason why these things are happening incredibly frustrating because like like I've been like all over the place like looking for like help and answers in terms of like um, health wise and like the closest that I've got is 
the doctors at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota told me that they were doing research, like whatever it is that I'm dealing with. And they told me they might have answers for me maybe 50 years down the line. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah. it was a lot better than like the majority of doctors I saw who told me that it was all in my head and I should go see a psychologist and I'll be fine. That's unbelievable. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, imagine having to already deal with, you know, the physical aspects of having these illnesses and the day-to-day impact only to be told that you are creating this stuff in your head like mm-hmm. really insensitive yeah that's, that's really very good. very much so and but so like, what has um what has your sort of support system looked like in managing this because you've had it since you were a child and how how mm-hmm. have you been able to cope uh, my support system has been largely family and friends yeah. like i'm very very privileged in that like i have like family who are willing to like like accommodate and like look after like me in ways that I can't for myself. Right. Which like should be one of those like things that like every disabled person should have like some form of accommodation, whether that be family or not. But the society that we live in is, you know, um, very ableist. And so for me, like when I was a child, it was a lot easier, partially because um, the first stroke manifested in very different ways than um, the second and the third did. Yeah. And partially because I was a child and so I didn't really have much in the ways of, um, like, when you're a child, you don't really have much going on. You, like, go to school and then come back home, like, do your homework and, like, just, you know, like, there's not much in form of responsibilities. And so that one was a lot easier because, like, I had the stroke and, like, it was, like, massively traumatizing and like a lot to deal with but like I was out of school for like three months and when I got back into school I was able to catch up because it was like the second grade you know and like it's like you're not really that far behind losing three months of school in the second grade compared to like losing months of school yeah. in university you know and so like my teachers were all very accommodating also and I was always very academically inclined which helped and like I could always lose myself in like academia and reading and writing and like all these like mental worlds that I still had access to, even though I physically um, was like limited in ways that I wasn't before. And ever since I became like like an adult, and after the second and third stroke, those ones mass- those ones affected me a lot more in terms of needing more accommodations. With those ones came chronic pain, fatigue, seizures, and a bunch of other different manifestations. But that like renders me unable to really like independently support myself through like a conventional nine to five because on a typical week say for the past couple weeks like three days out of the week I'm out of commission like having like a series of seizures and ridiculous amounts of pain like my legs are paralyzed I can't move and so I don't know when that's gonna happen and I don't know when like I don't know how long it's gonna last and so that precludes me from like a conventional employment because like I can't tell my boss you know for three days out the week and I can't tell you which days I'm gonna be out of commission you know and so and I've had to build a lot of accommodations around like I do like which is why I do the writing because that's something I can do on my own time and I can do for as long as my body's capable for doing and then I can put it away and you know rest and so it's a lot more like I found a lot of disability communities who I've interacted with 
find that like being your own boss is sometimes like the optimal employment choice for a disabled person because you're not they're not bound by these like social like norms of like you have to work Monday to Friday nine to five when our bodies are not like um, attuned to that. So would you say then taking that into consideration has that had a massive um, impact on your decision to take a more creative path in your career? Oh massively yeah because like my academic background is in the environmental sciences. Right. Yeah, like I have a bachelor's in rental science and I was working on my master's when the two strokes happened. And mm-hmm. so like that was like supposed to be my like path. But then after the strokes, I just couldn't don't, could no longer work in the field because the majority of jobs in that field are either conventional nine fives or very outdoorsy, very physically demanding, which my body can't keep up with. And yeah. so I needed to figure out a way to like do some form of work so that I could like make some money and also gain like you know some sort of like like purpose out of my life yeah but I needed to figure out something that would work within my like newfound limitations something that would be accommodating and the reason I went down the creative route was because I'd always been writing and so it's something that came naturally to me and it's something that I do regardless of if I'm getting paid for it or not and so and it's something that I can do you know literally from my bed the business side of the creative career came quite naturally to me, which surprised me. But I think one of the things that helped with that was I was just attuned towards business due to, I was just raised by a single mom who's an entrepreneur. And so I think just like convergence of like events happened to land me on this creative path, which I'm on right now and I'm happy being on, but I would still like ideally for a long-term goal to be doing um, multiple things at the same time. I don't really ever like just doing one thing, mm-hmm. largely because of like focus issues. And also because like, I find that like, if I switch between a whole bunch of different tasks within my day, it increases my capacity for like enduring each respective task. So it sounds like even though you had to, sort of let go of this this earlier vision that you had of you know working in environmental sciences you almost mm-hmm. found yourself on a path was, which was quite naturally aligned to the skills that you have you know just your natural skill of writing and entrepreneurship do you, do you feel like any sense of grief for the path that you you would have been on had you stayed on in in sciences or do you feel like you know actually I'm quite happy to be on this creative path and this is where I'm supposed to be it's mixed feelings because I do miss science and I wish that I had some way of incorporating more science into my like today. And it's something that I'm trying to like go back to hopefully in like a couple of years. I'm trying to hopefully go to school, um, like gain like, so that I can figure out some sort of like a part-time um, science-based position. But at the same time, writing is something that I've always like, I've always envisioned because like, I'm not sure if you can relate, but for me being from like an African family, our, our parents like raised us to get a practical, sustainable like career that like, you know, you can get job security with. Oh yeah, yeah, for yeah, sure. And, and, and so like, if you say you want to be a writer, it's like, what, you know, do you, do, like, what is this, you know? Like, what, like, are you thinking like, that's not, you know, like a practical career choice at all. So I was 
very much like guided towards STEM, but I was also very good at sciences naturally. And so that didn't help my case either. Yeah. And so I was doing it and I loved it, but I always wanted to like, I always wanted to write on the side. And so like my goal was like to have my full-time STEM career and then to write, um, like be a weekend warrior, writing on the week on the evenings and the weekends. Mm. Um, and that would have taken me probably a lot longer to be where I'm at currently in terms of my writing, because I just wouldn't have had as much time to dedicate to it. And because like, I tried to do that throughout university, like to write on the side, but I just didn't get as nearly as much writing done as I'd like to, because I had so many other priorities that came before the writing. And so when the writing moved to the forefront, it allowed me to like, have like some time to feel what it would be like to be a full-time writer. And I realized that like, as much as I love it, I can't see myself like, like waking up and like writing every single day, you know? And so that's why I like juggling things and like switching, like, like dealing with the business side of things because that utilizes different parts of my brain and that like helps me like get out of like the, because like being creative is draining uh, in a sense. And so I I don't feel like I can sustainably do it 24 seven breaks for like recharge and inspiration. And like, I need to like input in, you know, different art. And so I'm very happy with where I'm at. I'd like, you know, like, I mean, I'd like, like some changes in the long term that I'm working towards, but it's nothing like what I had expected. Sure. No, I can Mm -hmm. definitely relate to what you're saying there. I think for me as well, it's partly why I created this podcast is to kind of have um, a balance between what I mainly do in terms of my therapeutic work is sort of one-to-one interaction. And it's just nice Mm -hmm. to, you know, be able to have conversations that are almost outside the confines of therapeutic dialogue, but are still Mm -hmm. within the field that I really enjoy talking about. So I definitely understand the need to diversify your work otherwise it can become a bit overwhelming after some time for sure exactly exactly and you touched earlier on about an ableist society and I'm wondering about you know sort of the cultural perceptions within Uganda and within Africa because I know you've lived um, in other places within Africa as well and what has that Mm -hmm. been like because I know you know there can be so so much stigma around physical illness mental illness in a lot of African societies and how have you kind of dealt with those challenges? It's one of those things that's it's tricky to navigate for um, me because the majority of my disabilities are invisible. And so by looking at me, most people can't tell that I'm disabled, partially um, due to like I went, I underwent like nine years of physical therapy after my first stroke and the physical therapy and speech therapy that I did largely was like teaching me how to pass as able-bodied and so I'm very very good at not drawing attention to the parts of myself that are physically disabled and I'm very very good at like drawing people's attention like away from like my right hand and my right leg which are the like more predominantly physically disabled parts from the first stroke but then everything else in in terms of like, like, like head to toe, my body feels like it's on fire 24 seven. I'm always tired. I have seizures and like all these things like, like are invisible to outsiders because they're not in my body. And so 
I occupy a strained space whereby, like, if you don't notice my limp or my hand, or like, if like, I'm like having a decent day and I'm able to pass decently, I can present as able-bodied, which helps me in a lot of ways, because if I was very clearly physically disabled, I would get very different treatment. And I've seen this over time with the different like mobility aids that I've used because I've used, I've been in a wheelchair over like a couple like months and I've been also using a cane for like a couple of years on and off. And the difference in me independently like ambulating versus me moving with a cane versus me in a wheelchair is like drastic. And so, but then it's like one of those like double edged swords and like double whammies, like um, similar to like bisexuality where it's like, you're too like gay for um, straight people and too um, straight for gay people. I feel like if you have an invisible disability, it can be seen as like a privilege because you're able by passing, but it's a double whammy in that like you, you're not, you're not able-bodied even though you look like it. And yeah. so everybody expects what they expect from an able-bodied person from you because they're not cognizant of the fact that um, not all disabilities are visible. Like I remember I was in Washington DC on um, the train and I was sitting on the seats for disabled people. And um, this pregnant woman walks up to me and like literally barks at me. Says like, uh, what did she say? She said, can you move? And I, and I look up at her and like my mind just like goes through like, do I even want to get into this conversation? Because how, how can I, you know, like justify to her that like I need the seat if I don't have a wheelchair, if I don't have a cane on me, you know, if I'm a black man, like, you know, like it's just like, like this is a white woman, white pregnant woman. And so it's just like too many things like could potentially have gone wrong with that situation, especially with everybody in the train turning around and looking at me this black man, like, you know, like who's potentially refusing the white pregnant lady to sit down. Yeah. And so I, I just stood up and like gave her the seat and she just sat down and like, no, no, thank you. No, nothing. And like, it, like standing on the train, like caused me to be in a lot more pain than I would have otherwise. But like, it's like, is that worth the conversation that might have gone south? Right. That sounds yeah. like such an awful situation to have to be in and it really kind of also you know reminds me to be aware of of my assumptions and I think it's so easy for us you know who identify as able-bodied and to just to have those perceptions of people and say oh well there's nothing wrong with you you know like that lady assumed about you you know and then again like you said as a black man I feel like as black men and women, there is this um, perception of strength and that we don't feel pain as much as other people do as well. So then oh, yeah. so that layer added on Definitely. top of it as well, you know? So I, I can just only imagine mm-hmm. how, how tough that must be. So kind of moving mm-hmm. into your, your creative work and how this links into your journey of managing chronic illness. How, how is this kind of linked into you going into poetry and to writing? Have you found this to be a massive outlet for you? I have. I've found it to be very, very cathartic and like very therapeutic in a sense. 
yeah. because what I've always done, like whenever I'm like struggling with something that like I can't really like wrap my head around or like think through or like talk through with other people, I tend to write about it as like a way to process things that are difficult that I'm going through. And so in terms of like, just like being a disabled person in an able-bodied world, there's a lot um, to unpack and there's a lot of like emotions and feelings and like just like like struggles and uh, difficulties and writing is one of the ways that I express that and that like it's very very much a release and an outlet but I try to be as I, I try to be delicate with anything that I like publish for like the world to see because it can be very tempting to like go down the like unfiltered like raw just like I'm just gonna spew it all on the page yeah I feel like I have a certain responsibility to not put out there into the public anything that could potentially be harmful to to like anyone and like sometimes you know if, if I'm just spewing unfiltered thoughts there might be something in there that I'm like yeah you know I'm not sure if this you know should be shared publicly with my name attached to it as like, you know, this is Mugabe and this is what like Mugabe has written, you know? And so it's, there's like a line and like, like a, a sort of seesaw that you, that I balance on. Yeah. But it's definitely been like a massive, massive help. Like my, my first book is about my um, second and third strokes and like writing it was like a massive form of like just processing like everything that I'd been through. And after I was done with it, like, I just felt such a weight off my shoulders and like I could like move forward after that chapter. That sounds incredibly powerful. And I'm wondering at mm-hmm. any point, did it ever feel counterintuitive to share some of these experiences? Kind of considering, you know, like Ugandan and African perceptions on putting our stuff out there. You know, we can be very hush hush. Like, did it ever at mm-hmm. any point feel like, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't really be telling people this much about me. Like, did, did you ever have that thought? Oh, did I have that thought like multiple times a day while, while I was writing? Yeah, like <laughs> um, I, I was, I was absolutely terrified of because, like, especially like um, with my first book, because my first book is structured as um, a series of conversations between myself and uh, a character named uh, Philomena, who's representative of the person I was supposed to be. And when I'm talking to Philomena, like everything that I talk to Philomena about in the book is. 100% true to everything that I experienced and everything that I went through. And so I'm very unfiltered and I'm very honest. And I pulled from like actual messages that I had like with my like um, closest friends and family to like structure the book. And so it's, it, it was very, very terrifying. And I needed to have a couple of conversations with a couple of people just like to let them know about certain things that happen in the book just in case you know it gets blown out of proportion or something like just so that I have told you and we've had this conversation beforehand Uh, because one of the things that I talk about in the book is uh, my suicide attempt which I talk about and I'm honest about because one of the things that I try to do with the book and that I've been trying to do more and more in life in general that's helped me significantly is just embracing vulnerability as strength yes instead of shutting away all these things and like ever since like I started being like a lot more like open and vulnerable about things that I was dealing with I noticed that the things became easier to deal with Uh, (laughs) and like it was like such a like 
aha moment where I was like, oh, so like all I have to do is like talk about like what I'm dealing with and like, you know, like open up what I'm dealing with to like my therapist or my friends or my family, et cetera. And yeah. like, it, it helps me deal with it because like, especially being raised as a boy, you're raised very much to like, like I remember when my dad died, I was 13 and I remember coming home and everybody telling me, be strong, be strong, be strong for your mother, be strong for your mother. And I was like, I'm 13 years old. My dad just died. Like, I don't want to be strong right now. You know, like, right, it's not like why is everyone strong right now? Mm-hmm. I'm a kid. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Why is everyone telling me? And like this, like association of strength with being silent and not crying and like, just, you know, being like super stoic, and like you know like like basically not feeling is yeah. what like like really really upset me but it's also something that i internalized to a degree and that i had that i had to unlearn later on in life sure. and so it's difficult with the writing because sometimes when people come up to me and they're like oh my god like i remember when you said this in your book i'm like oh my god like, oh my goodness, I forgot that I put that in and like I was maybe a little too honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. now some people are like, like, like they tell me things about my life and I'm like, how do you know this? And they're, they're like, your book. And I was like, oh yeah, like I forgot. I put like a little too much information in there, but like it's fun because like nothing in there is like anything that I'm ashamed of. Nothing in there is anything that I don't, I don't mind people, you know, like knowing all of these details about me because nothing in there is like particularly private or personal. And so it's just like, it was just like a very like liberatory experience going through the writing process and everything yeah. that I was dealing with at the time. Yeah. Wow. And I must say, you know, it, it does sound like that. It was just such a powerful experience. And I haven't actually read um, Dear Philomena, but mm-hmm. in preparation for this interview, I mean, reading about the book itself and reading reviews, I thought, wow, this is definitely a book that I need to read. So I'm definitely going to be purchasing it. Yeah, it just just sounds um, so amazing. And what I was curious about is why you decided to write it as kind of a conversation between Philomena and yourself, Mugabe. And was it a projection of your sort of fantasy of what an alternative reality would have looked like for you and was that a way of you kind of distancing yourself from what you were experiencing as Mugabe and what what was that all about the kind of the split personality and the conversation between the two because it's such an interesting way of putting it thank you honestly the reason that I so like I have been like like since I was a child my mom raised me with this story of of Philomena as the person I was supposed to be because she when she wanted to do her ultrasound to determine like the gender reveal the doctors told her she was expecting a baby girl right and so she was very very excited very happy because she had my sister and my two brothers and so she wanted a second girl so that she could have two of each Mm. and so she picked the name Philomena for me and like got a bunch of pink dresses and like frilly bonnets and all this stuff at her baby shower and so for the first like couple of months of my life, like all my baby photos are me and like bright pink and like super like flowery garments. But like, sh- she's like always like, she raised me in a way that was always like, she was like, you're my little like Phil- Philomena, although you're still Mugabe. Um, right. And so she, she always like, like, like celebrated and emphasized um, the feminine 
Mm. And so the inspiration for the book came like a year after my second and third strokes because the doctors had given me a year to live. And so I was supposed to technically be dead by the beginning of 2016. And so I was like, I'll never year left to live. I, I was, what, 23 at the time. And, like, I dreamt about, like, being a writer for my entire life. I'd always said, like, like since I was a kid and I discovered reading, I fell in love with books. And I was, I was like, I want to be a writer. And my mom was like, yeah, sure thing. But, like, you need to get a job and you can write on the side. And so I was like, all right. But when I realized that I had a year left to live and I still hadn't, like, written much I was like crap I've been like writing on and off on and off on and off but I was like if I'm never year left to live I might as well try my hardest to put out a body of work that can survive past myself and so that I can say that at least you know I tried in my time on earth to do what I what I wanted to do as a child and so I honestly started it off as a series of letters between myself and Philana but then I used the letters incorporated throughout the book and I expanded it to be more so text-based. And so the like 70% of the book is me and Philomena texting back and forth. And the reason that I structured it like that was largely accessibility reasons because like I physically, when I was writing, I, I could write for, I'd say like 10 to 15 minutes every other day. And that was like by maximum capacity because like if I tried to go past that I would like have like a three hour long seizure as a result of the exertion that that entailed on my body and so I needed a form that I could write in those like tiny little chunks of time and like text message like works perfect for that because like I could you know like write a couple new texts every day for me and Philomena and I slowly built up my capacity over time through that and so I was able to write for longer and longer and longer periods of time. But I really wanted my book to be able to be read and digested and understood by people from all different like capacities and neurodivergent people, disabled people, people from all backgrounds. And I feel like the text format works very well in terms of like just making um, something a very accessible read rather than like dense jargon and like overly complicated sentences and like an overly complicated plot. Like if it's just text back and forth, like everybody pretty much regardless of circumstance texts and the way that it's structured and broken up into those brief days where like it's like this is a text back and forth, this is a diary entry, this is a tweet, this is a what. It makes it first of all like very millennial and that like it's it, it's written and it's read like people like of our generation speak and communicate but it's also very accessible reading that like i don't like text that like force the reader to go very very deep and i like giving the reader the audience member choice on how much they want on how deep they want to go and so you can choose to enjoy it at the purely surface level or you can choose to unpack and unravel the layers underneath, but it doesn't require like a complex vocabulary or a complex whatever to understand because like accessibility, once again, like I wanted people whose English wasn't the first language to be able to understand and read my book. I wanted people from all sorts of backgrounds to be able to understand reading my book. And so that was largely what informed the style of um, writing that I um, did it through. And through 
working through that, it helped me like unpack a lot of notions around gender as well through the whole phenomena of the person I was supposed to be. I love that you really considered accessibility and people who English isn't their first language and really thought about how the reader would um, receive it. And, and I know you've gone on tour with this book to many countries mm-hmm. and how has it been received across different cultures? It's been received like surprisingly really, really well. I was not expecting this reception at all when yeah. I put it out. I was expecting, you know, like just like to like sell like because I, I published with this tiny little press in Toronto and I was able to do a deal where I bought the rights out to the book. And so uh, my first print run was like 200 books. And I like did a Kickstarter to be able to pay for me buying the rights and be able to pay for the books because since I um, took over my own operation, my publisher was hands off. And so she was like, you can do whatever you want, like, like since you own it. And so I was like, sounds good. And so I needed to fundraise to be able to pay for it, like the printing and everything since my publisher wasn't covering that because I like owned everything. And like the Kickstarter was able to fund all that. And through the Kickstarter, I got like a hundred or so orders. And so the, the next hundred was like my goal. I was like, okay, if I sell these next hundred, then I'll be good. Uh, but then I sold like all, all of them. Then I was like, if I'm going to do another print run, I need to find a way to um, sell books. And like, I'm not a household name. I'm not, you know, the, I'm not signed to like a major publisher that has a ma- marketing team behind me. And so I figured I could use the skill set of spoken word poetry that I had from university and grad school. I used to like um, do slam poetry for fun. And I decided to tour with the book, hitting up um, different venues, which was one of the reasons that I was able to tour as much as I did because I was able to go to like spoken word or like slam poetry sort of venues because of my background. And I was also able to go to more like literary readings. And there's not a whole lot of like intersection between those two scenes mm. um, because the literary readings tend to see themselves as like superior to like the slam poetry and tend to like, you know, look down right. on the slam poetry and the slam poetry sees like the literary readings as like elitist, you know? Mm. And so like being able to bridge that gap while touring um, was one of my highlights. And it was like surprisingly like really, really well received everywhere that I toured with it. And like on the African continent, I was a little worried because of the subject matter, but yeah. like I, I ended up like having so many wonderful conversations with so many people. Like after, each time I perform with somebody, one or two or five or 10 people walk up to me and like just start spilling their like guts out to me and start telling me like, oh, I've never told anyone this before, but like I really struggled with this or I really struggled with that. And that to me like makes it all worth it and like makes like I feel like if I have to put myself out there and be like in like the person on stage spilling my guts out in order for other people to feel that they're not alone that's like that's something that I'm willing to do because like it it, it scares me sometimes how much power words have because like this one lady told me that after reading my book, she reached out to her brother, um, who she hadn't talked to in three years, because her brother was struggling with depression. And she was like, just like, like, he was very self-destructive. And she'd just given up on him because she'd been trying, 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 trying. And he was just incredibly self-destructive. And so she just cut him off. And then she said, after she read my book, she called him because she was like, I helped put her in the shoes of 
she was like like clearly you're going through like you know like very very different things that my brother is going through but like see reading your book helped me like realize like a better sense of what it was like from his perspective and that made me want to try again that made her want to try again isn't it so lovely to receive that kind of feedback and just realize the impact that your work has on other people's lives i mean it must be such an amazing feeling makes it all worth it in the end doesn't it it does it also makes me uncomfortable to a degree because like i don't really like like it makes me feel like like i have to be very very careful with anything that i put out into the world because i don't realize the impact that it might necessarily have on on, on another human being you know what i mean right. yeah there's a lot of responsibility that comes of it at yeah. the same time yeah for sure definitely and I think the yes, nature of your, of your tour is also kind of a testament to your adaptability in being able to move between those worlds, as you described, between a kind of uh, poetry world and then a kind of literary festivals and, and events. And it's kind of kind of shows how flexible you are and how well received you are in all of those circles. So that's that's pretty cool to be able to be to be able to navigate between both. Just to round things up. One of the things mm-hmm. that I do like to ask my guests is about the three mm-hmm. things that helps to kind of lift you when you're in a place that is maybe a bit low or you're not feeling too good. So three things for me are music, food, and a happy place. So to begin with, I'd like to ask you, when you're having a bad day, which song do you listen to right now or maybe your favorite song of all time? I know that's really tough. Or just a song that makes you feel happy mm-hmm. right now, I guess. A song that makes me feel happy to listen to right now. Yeah. Um, probably uh, Futsal Shuffle 2020 by Lindsey Burke. Okay. <laughs> He's got a dance to it too. And so. <laughs> okay. You're going to have to send me the link to that after this because I don't think I've ever no heard that song. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> and then secondly. It's a fun song. So secondly, I'd like to know what your favorite food is. So what's your kind of comfort food that you'd reach for if you're having a bad day? Like if I'm able to access it, my favorite food of all time is like a good um, cream caramel or a flan. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And thirdly, your favorite place to be as a pick-me-up so it could be a country a city or just a place you know like in your house favorite place to be that's a tough one honestly anywhere where there is grass and a natural body of water i'm very happy that's that's nice awesome i've had such an amazing time speaking with you and I actually can't wait to oh, dive so into the book. Yes, it's been, it's been such a great conversation. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. It's been great speaking. Oh, thank you. Yes. Okay. Take care. All right. Bye. You too. Bye.